0: Friends, you're going to turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we've been in this book since August. We're uh, seeing it come to a close this morning, and so we'll wrap up this, this letter together. Now, when we began studying James back in August, it was very clear, James made it clear that Christianity is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And it's a marathon that along the way we're going to face trials, some that are difficult to get past. It's a marathon that involves temptations, shortcuts that lounge alongside the road, looking at us running this race and saying, Why are you running? Come and relax with us. It's a marathon that we are called to run together. We're called to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's a long marathon. It's a a race that requires perseverance, steadfastness, endurance. And there are days when we're just weary from this race. Tired. But I want to say with absolute certainty from the authority of God's word, that when you get to the finish line, Christian, none of us will look back with regret. You will look back and know that the race was worth running. And yet along the way, we feel weary. There are days as we seek to follow Christ together, and in the difficulties of this race, we ask How am I going to finish this marathon of Christianity if where I'm at right now, I'm this tired? I don't know how much longer it's going to last. I'm tired today. How in the world am I going to make it to the end? You ever ask that? Well, James ends this letter by showing us how we can endure, how we can persevere, even thrive until the very end. Look at verse 13 with me. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit." Patience, steadfastness, waiting, in the midst of a painful trial can feel impossible. That's why the call to patience and waiting and steadfastness, that in fact was repeated seven times last week in chapter five, verses seven th- through twelve, is then matched with a sevenfold call to prayer in verses thirteen through twenty. Seven times he calls us to prayer in verses thirteen through through twenty. And so James' point is that the steadfastness that is needed for a demanding marathon of Christianity is fueled by prayer. You're going to make it to the end? You got to pray. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Persevere by prayer. Persevere by prayer. And we're going to see that in verses 13 through 18. Now, in in verses 13 through 18, this paragraph, James is going to make four, four points, four categories. He's going to give us four categories of prayer and we'll try to walk through each of those four categories. The first one is this. He begins with individual prayer. So look again at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him or her pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's not complicated. He says, listen, if you're in trouble, what should you do? Pray. Pray. If things are going well for you, if you're cheerful, then sing praise. You're commanded to sing praise. So prayer is, prayer is very simply us talking to God. Singing praise is simply another form of prayer. In both singing praise and in praying, we are communicating to God. Now, suffering and being cheerful, those, those represent actually two extremes on a spectrum of life's experiences. But I don't think that he's saying you should only pray in the extremes. He's not limiting prayer to, you know, trouble or cheerfulness. You know, we say, for instance, we say if a teacher, that, you know, that teacher knew her material from A to Z, what we mean by that is that she knew everything about the topic. In the same way, James points to the extremes of suffering and cheerfulness to say we should pray from A to Z. We should pray about everything, big or small. So just think about a typical day for yourself. All the things that go on in your day. You know, the the, the 3 o'clock appointment that you have scheduled for work. The kids that you... you are caring for throughout the day, the doctor's appointment that you have at four, the tough conversation that you're mulling over that you had at breakfast, the test that you have to study for later in the week, or the parking spot that you need. Friends, God is inviting us to come to him with everything from A to Z, from suffering to cheer. This is what Ephesians 6, verse 18 says. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. So church, just pause and ask yourself, do you you pray that way? Just think about yesterday, Saturday. Did you pray that way? Pray about, do you pray about everything from A to Z like that? Do you talk to God as a loving father who invites you to come to him with everything? If you're honest, like me, I, don't, I have to confess I, I, I often don't. Why is that? God is inviting us. Why don't we pray like he calls us to? There's lots of reasons. I think one reason, though, is because we assume God just doesn't care. We know the right answer, God cares. But in our heart of hearts, we just think God doesn't care. Sometimes life is going well. You know, you've got a job, you're, you're healthy, you've got money in the bank, and we just assume we don't need God to care. We're self-reliant. Other times, trials put us in a position where we're tempted to assume the worst about God. We, we ask things like, if God cared, why is he letting me hurt this much? Or just knowing that God has a big old universe to run, we simply doubt that he has time. That he has time to care about us and the details of our day. And so what happens? We just don't pray. We forget God, and we just go on with the next task in our day. But friends, in calling us to pray about everything from A to Z, James is actually pointing us to the very heart of who God is. We begin this morning with Psalm 116, verse 2. It says, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. I love, I love that picture of God inclining his ear to us in verse 2. You hear what he's saying. The creator of the universe with infinite power and infinite wisdom and infinite resources and with a generous heart, he inclines his ear to listen to you when you pray, church. It's like a, it's like a father who actually gets down on his knee to look at his child on an eye level so that that child knows I got dad's attention. God inclines his ear. He looks at you eye to eye in a sense and he's saying, you've got my whole attention. What do you want to talk about? What do you need? What's on your heart? God cares. What's more, when we, sing God, when, we sing, sing, when we sing songs of praise to our God, God hears our songs of praise. This past week I was reading in Psalm 149. And Psalm 149 begins in verse 1 with a call to us to praise. Praise the Lord. And then by verse 4, he gives us the reason. Why should we praise the Lord? For, the text says, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Why should you praise the Lord, according to Psalm 149? Because he takes pleasure in you, church. <laughs> Let that sink in for a little bit. When you come to God for the thousandth time, asking Him for the same thing over and over again, no matter what you come to God with, he does not say, oh my goodness, and roll his eyes and sigh. That's not true. The heart of God takes pleasure pleasure in his people. That's why we sing songs of praise to him, at least one of the reasons. It's why we sing to him together on Sundays. It's why we sing at home with our families. It's why we should sing even alone, individually, individually. I don't know if you know this but we 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 have recorded a number of songs. Jason Brown has put together a number of songs that we've we sing together as a church. We've recorded those songs and put them on a media player on our church's website, fbcum.org. You know why we did that? To remind ourselves throughout the week of this is who God is and then aid us to do what James is saying, to sing songs of praise to God. Don't underestimate the importance of that task of singing praise. To our God. It's a huge help in our perseverance. But what, what, okay, that's good, right? But what about the times that we pray? We ask God for something, but we are left waiting. God says, not yet. Or what about the times that we're praying and God says, I hear you, but no. That's hard. It's hard But friends, even then, when we're left waiting and God says not yet or no, even then we can be confident as the people of God, we can be confident about God's heart, his goodness. One of of my favorite texts about prayers in Matthew 7. Jesus calls us to ask and seek and knock. He calls us to pray in Matthew 7, and then he asks, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give, give good gifts, good things to those who ask him? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, when you go to your mom and dad to ask for something that you need, you don't You don't hesitate. They're evil, Jesus says. They're imperfect. They're sinners. And yet you don't hesitate to ask him for what you need. You're confident that they're going to give you something good. And Jesus' point is, okay, how much more? How much more than with a God who is infinitely good, infinitely perfect, how much more will he not give you what is good? Oh, friends, so often we are wrong about what we think is good for us. We don't know. But God knows. And God promises as a loving father to give us what is good when we ask. So don't worry about, should I ask? Ask, whatever's on your heart, come to the Lord with that. And then trust him with what he says is good for you. Whether it's times of trouble or times of cheer, God invites us, child of God, come to me. God wants To talk with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? (laughs) So come. Again and again and again. From A to Z, come. After individual prayer, James moves to a second category of prayer. Praying, calling on the elders to have them pray for you. That's the second category. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, this is a tough two verses. <laughs> uh, and, and I got to be honest, there's a, there's a lot of opinions about what these two verses mean. And some will some actually use these verses, reference these verses, and they misunderstand and they misapply what these verses are saying. Some will wrongly understand it. Some will just ignore it. I don't have to do with it, so they're just going to skip it. Friends, one of the things that we aim to do here at First Baptist is we, we try to do what's called expositional preaching. I know it's a big word. It just means what we're aiming to do is that the point of the sermon should be the point of the text. I don't know what I'm going to say to you next week. Whoever's preaching here doesn't know what they're going to say next week until they study the text. And our goal is to tell you what God is saying in his word. And so typically what we do is we work through a book of the Bible verse by verse. And that safeguards us from just cherry-picking the verses that we like and from skipping over the verses that are difficult. The reason I'm preaching on James 5, 13 through 20 is because it comes after verse 12. And I think that's good for us because it's us admitting that we don't know what's best for us. God knows what we need this week far better than I know what, 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 what's good for us and far better than what you think is good for us. And so my job as one of your pastors is not to be innovative. My job is not to be uh, flashy or showy. My job is to be faithful, to preach to you what God's word says. Some of you are thinking, well, we don't need to worry about you being flashy. That's all right. So let's go back and just walk through. I think we just walk through verses 14 through 15 carefully the, there's some questions that are hard to untie, untie. I still have questions about the text. But I think, thankfully, the main point of the text is very clear. So let's do that together. The situation in verse 14 that James lays out is that somebody in the church is sick. And I think it's safe to say that this is not just a common cold. It's a serious enough sickness that they can't go to the elders. They have to, ha- they have to call on someone to come to them. So it's a severe sickness. They're struggling. Not only physically, physically but they're eventually struggling emotionally and spiritually. It's possible the illness has lingered on for so long or the sickness has become so severe that the sick person becomes discouraged, even depressed. Doubts about God and who he is begin to creep into their minds. And for whatever reason... They're just so hurting, their suffering is so severe in their sickness, their physical sickness, that they are unable to pray even. Well, What do you do when you get there? You ever been there? James says, you call on the elders of your church and you ask them to come and pray for you. Don't give up, don't drop out of the race, call the elders of the church and let them pray over you. Now, By elders, James means the pastors of the church. In the New Testament, by the way, the terms pastors and elders are used synonymously. So you have nine elders here, you have nine pastors. Those terms, in terms of the Greek usage, are the same, right? Pastors, elders, same thing. So he says, call on the pastors, the elders of the church. Why? Because they're called to shepherd the flock, and One of the the tasks of a shepherd, according to Ezekiel 34 16, is to strengthen the weak. In other words, elders are to come alongside members of the church, sheep, and apply God's word to their lives for counsel, for encouragement, and for prayer. That's part of our job as elders. Let me be very clear. I I, I think in in, in having the church call on the elders, it's not that the elders' prayer is more effective. Well, so-and-so's prayer didn't work, so we better call the A-team. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. Oftentimes, elders will pray for the sick, and sometimes they're healed, sometimes they're not. That's that's not the point. It's not that the elders' prayer is more effective. And he's going to make that clear in verses 16 and 17, by the way. We'll get to that in a little bit. I think he says to call on the elders... Because shepherding members who are struggling is part of what the job description of an elder is. He's saying, Don't give up. Don't, don't give up the race. You gotta pray. And sometimes you call on your spiritual leaders to come and pray for you. We good? All right. So what's up then with the anointing oil? Right? Well, this is another area in this text, these verses, I think we, we see people read these verses and then drift off into imaginative speculation, and they drift away from what the text actually is saying. Because you can, you can hear this, what he's saying, and they go, oh, this is something magical going on here, and, and we miss what the text is saying. And actually, right now, if you go online, you can find spiritual hucksters who are going to quote James five verse fourteen, and for fifteen ninety nine, you can you can order this oil that they say will heal you. It's not about the oils, church. There are many references. In fact, I think there's only one reference, Mark six thirteen. There's many references about healings in the New Testament that don't in- include oil. So the point is not the oil. James' point is prayer. Call on the elders to pray for you. More likely, I think that the, the use of oil is a, is, is symbolic. It's a, it's a physical reminder to the person who's being prayed for that they're being set apart for special attention for prayer. It's an encouragement. It's not magic. Okay, so if... if, if, if If what James is talking about in verses 14 and 15, if it's not about the oil and it's not about the elders, what is it then? Well, some will read verse 15 and assume that the key is your faith. Look at verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And so they assume that that the key to unlocking the healing is the person's faith. Again, we have to be really careful here. Wealth and health prosperity gospel preachers will misquote verse 15 and use this verse to claim that the reason that you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. If you just believe, if you just muster up enough faith, then God will heal you. Look at verse 15, they're saying. But let me be clear, not only is that cruel to those who are suffering illness, it is not what James 5 verses 14 and 15 is teaching. It's not what James is saying. Those who use the text to say this are ripping verse 15 out of its context and twisting it to say something that it's not in order to suit their own thinking and to get you to pay money to support their ministry. It's not what the text is saying. James uses a similar phrase that we've already seen in chapter 1. And I think that helps us understand what this prayer of faith is. So after telling us to pray for wisdom in the midst of trials in chapter 1, verse 5, he went on to say in chapter 1, verse 6, but let him ask in faith. Same phrase. Prayer of faith, ask in faith. 1, 515, saying the same thing. So what we said, what we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, is what he meant by that is asking in faith means when you ask God for wisdom, don't ask with a double mind. In other words, don't come to God and say, if you say this, I'll listen. If you say that, I won't listen. That's a double-mindedness. Rather, what he's saying is, when you ask God for wisdom, come to God with a single mind that whatever he says is wise or good, you're in. Your mind's made up before he even says, I trust God, I'm in. That's, that's what it means to ask in faith. It means to trust God. So, faith isn't something that forces the hand of a reluctant God. The prayer of faith is prayer that trusts a generous God. It's prayer that is confident that God will do what is right, whether he chooses to heal us immediately or not. And that interpretation is then then supported by the immediate context of chapter 5, which by the way, as a reminder, is dealing with having patience and steadfastness in the midst of our suffering. Now, one way to read verses 14 and 15 then is to say, well, then God will heal all of our diseases, but not until the final resurrection when Jesus comes back. So what he means here is just a spiritual healing. And then the physical healing will come in the new heavens and the new earth and the, in, the, in the resurrection. And I just want to say that's certainly true, and that's a huge comfort for us as believers, but I, I, I think that a plain reading of the text suggests an actual immediate healing Here, God, friends, God can, he has the power, and he often does heal. We believe that God heals diseases. But this text does not promise that God will immediately, every time, heal those who pray this prayer. This text does not tell us when God will heal, whether in this life immediately or in the resurrection. Let me just give you an example. The Apostle Paul. Did, you think the Apostle Paul had faith? You bet he did. And in 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He had a physical ailment, and he prayed three times, God, heal me. Take this away. Take this away. Take this away. Anyone? know what God's answer was? No. My grace is sufficient for you. Did Paul lack faith? No. The prayer of faith receives God's answer and trusts him. And then waits for the the time, even if it's in the final resurrection, when God will heal all of our diseases and ailments. And so it's not the oil. It's not the elders. It's not even our faith. Friends, the key in verses 14 and 15. You ready? Here's the key. It's God. (laughs) Verse 15 says it. It doesn't say the oil will raise you up. It doesn't say the elders will raise you up. It doesn't say your faith will raise you up. It says the Lord will raise him up. And we trust the Lord with that. His way, his timing. So, Verses 14 and 15 is an invitation to come to God in our pain when we're too weak and too weary and too hurting to even pray ourselves, to call on the elders to come and pray for us, to help us, to trust God. Now, what about the end of verse 15? James says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What do we do with that? Well, friends, listen, there are times in the New Testament where a certain sickness is God's discipline. There are times when our sickness is due to a particular sin and God will discipline us to get our attention. If you want an example of this, read 1 Corinthians 11 later this afternoon. But I also want to be very clear. Not all sickness is because of someone's particular sin. And I think we need to be very clear about that in the fact that we're all wearing face masks going through a pandemic right now. I think that's why the if in verse 15 is important. Right? James says, if he has committed sins... The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That if reminds us that James himself does not assume that all sickness is because of sin. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And Jesus himself taught this same thing. Not all sickness is due to sin. Read John chapter 9. However, It's possible that as the sick person lay in their bed with lots of time to contemplate what's going on, they begin to wonder to themselves, is this God's discipline? Is God slowing me down right now in order to get my attention to something that I've been missing? Is this because of my sin? And you can imagine somebody who in their sickness is wrestling with this thought, they begin to lose hope. If this is because of my sin, if this is God's discipline, am I beyond hope? Is God done with me? And for anybody who is concerned that they might be beyond God's grace because of their sin, James offers a resounding no. As long as you are alive, you are not beyond God's grace and his reach of his, his mercy. And he says that by saying, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not maybe, not perhaps, not 50-50. He says he will be forgiven. Friends, for anyone who turns from their sin in repentance and comes to Christ, that is always the case. I love how Richard Sibb says it. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Do you believe that, church? There is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. Or as James 5.11 tells us, the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Friends, whether you're here this morning in person, whether you're watching online or in the FM lot right now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that you see God's heart this morning. I pray that you see and receive his grace and his mercy. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned against God, who is good and is holy. The Bible teaches that the wages of our sin is death and hell. And we're all sinners. That means if we have breath in our lungs today and our hearts are still beating today, it's because of God's mercy We will all die one day, but the time that God gives us on this planet is to come to know him, to come to Christ, to trust in him and receive his mercy. The one human being who didn't deserve to die was Jesus because he lived a perfect life without sin. And as they were arresting Jesus in order to crucify him, what's interesting is that Jesus made it clear. All that he had to do is say one word and God would send legions of angels to swoop him up and rescue him from the pain that he was about to go through on the cross. He could have said that word and been rescued and spared from the pain of the crucifixion. But he didn't. He didn't because in his great love for us, Christ died for sinners like us. He died for sinners like us, for anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Friends, it can be hard to believe that God is good. It can be hard to believe that God is trustworthy when we're hurting and suffering and sick. But this is how we know that God is good and trustworthy. Jesus died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead for our salvation. So turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn from your efforts to be good enough for God. And simply look to Christ and trust in him alone today. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're coming from, you will be forgiven, the text says. Church, how in the world are we going to keep going? How are we going to remain steadfast and persevere to the very end in the marathon of Christianity? We persevere by prayer. We pray individually. We call on the elders to pray for us when we need to. And then the third category that he gives us for prayer is this. We should pray for one another. We should pray for one another. Look at verse 16. Therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now notice, James doesn't say go to the priest for confession. He says, confess your sins to one another. The Bible is very clear that there is only one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is our priest. And so we confess our sins to God, even as we read earlier in Psalm 32. He is our mediator. But one of the ways that we help each other carry our burdens when we're weak and we're struggling, one of the ways that we help each other and point each other to Jesus is by confessing our sins to each other and praying for one another. When the gospel came to the city of Ephesus, that's exactly what happened You read about it in Acts 19, verse 18. It says, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. And they were free to do that because they understood that their identity was not in their performance, but in their being forgiven in Jesus Christ. Now, when James mentions being healed in verse 16, he could be carrying on the idea about what he has been saying in verses 14 and 15. In other words, he might still be talking about physical healing. That's a possibility. But I think after talking about physical healing and calling the elders, I think it's actually more likely that he's switching his focus to talking now in verse 16 about a spiritual or relational healing when he turns from calling on the elders to pray for us to actually calling on us to pray for one another. This kind of fits the context. James has expressed a concern all throughout the letter about our fellowship as believers. You see, you see that in his concern about quarrels and fights in chapter 4. And even seven verses earlier, he said, do not grumble against one another. Friends, <laughs> when we're going through hard times, we're tempted to grumble against each other. And he says, don't do that. We need each other. And so he's concerned about our fellowship, our unity in this, if we're going to make it. So I think what he's saying in verse 16 is if we sin against someone, we should confess our sin to them. And we should ask for their forgiveness so that that relationship can be restored and mended and healed. And we know that when we sin against God as a child of God, when we sin against God, our position as a child of God will never change. You're forgiven your, your, your sins are forgiven past, present and future. No one will steal your justification that, that is once for all. But our fellowship with God is hindered by our sin, and that too, needs to be restored or mended. And we confess our sins to each other, we confess our sins to God to have that fellowship again. It's also what we promise in our Church covenant. We promise in our church covenant to pray for each other. In conflict, to seek to follow Christ's example of reconciliation without delay. One of the ways we keep that church covenant is by obeying what he's saying in verse 16. Okay, so how then can we pray for each other? What are some practical ways we can do that? Well, let me offer you some suggestions. Use your church directory, right? This is all the members of this church. We put your your name in there and your picture in there so that we can pray for each other. If you take a page a day to pray for a page in the directory a day. In one month, you'll pray for the whole church membership. So use your directory as a tool for for prayer. Another thing you can do is join us on Wednesday nights for our prayer meetings. We have a prayer meeting this Wednesday night at 6.30 on Zoom. Join us as we pray for one another uh, in our Wednesday night prayer meetings. Pray with your family. Pray with your roommates. Pray with your friends. Pray with your small groups. Begin a meeting with prayer. End a meeting with prayer. Pray before your meals together. Pray before you go to bed. Pray when you wake up together. And if somebody asks you, will you pray for this? One of the things that my dad taught me and modeled really well for me is don't say, okay, I'll pray for that later. Because honestly, who does that? We forget. We we mean well, but we forget. What my dad taught and modeled well for me is when somebody says, will you pray for that? Just stop what you're doing. And pray for them right there. That way you don't forget. Friends, we persevere by prayer. We keep going in the marathon of Christianity by by praying. And so James calls us to pray individually. And at times when it's rough, we call on the elders to pray for us. And we pray for one another. Sounds good, right? Right? It sounds good, but for some of us, if we're honest, there's still this nagging question that we're reluctant to say out loud. In the back of our minds, we're asking, okay, this sounds good, but does prayer really work? Does prayer really make a difference? And we know better than to say that out loud. But friends, I think if we're honest, a lot of us think that from time to time. And James knows that. And as a good pastor, he ends this kind of paragraph on prayer by giving us an encouragement to pray in verses 16 through 18, the end of verse 16 through 18. So look at the end of verse 16. Here's his encouragement to pray. "'The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth.'" Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, at the end of verse 16, when he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power, that word righteous, <laughs> it can be discouraging, right? I mean, we know we're righteous in Christ, but when we look in the mirror, do you see right, a righteous person? And so we, we, see, we hear this call to... You know, the, the the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And we think, well, that disqualifies me because my prayers seem really poor. My prayers seem infrequent. I'm a sinner and my prayers feel pathetic. You ever feel that way? One of us does. Two of us do. <laughs> Friends, that's why Elijah and his example is so encouraging for us. Elijah was a prophet of God who served In the Old Testament, in the 9th century BC. If you want to read about Elijah, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, all the way to 2 Kings chapter 2, talks about Elijah. 1 Kings 17, all the way to 2 Kings 2. And and when you read about Elijah's life, in one sense, his life is is miraculous, It's, it's it's remarkable. I mean, the stuff that he saw, God used him to raise a dead person to life. 1 Kings chapter 17. God used him to, to bring down fire from heaven in the showdown with the prophets of Baal, 1, King, 1 Kings 18. And then Elijah splits the Jordan River to get across when there was no bridge, 2 Kings chapter 2. That's pretty remarkable. And yet, here's what's cool. The thing that James highlights about Elijah are not the miracles. The, things that, the thing that he highlights about Elijah is this. He was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah was an ordinary person. He's no different than you or me. And as you go back and read about Elijah, you'll see that. (laughs) I love how honest the text is about biblical heroes. The real heroes, Jesus, right? So when you read about Elijah, there's times when he gave into fear. And the prophet freaks out. 1 Kings 19, verse 3. At times, the prophet Elijah fell into discouragement, into depression, and into despair. 1 Kings 19, verse 4. At one point, he fell into self-pity to the point that he was ready to take his own life. 1 Kings 19, verse 10. So yes, his life was remarkable, but he was also an ordinary person like you and like me. He was an ordinary person. But he was right with God. He was right with God. And that's good news for sinners like us. Because what that means is that sinners like you and me, who are right with God through the grace of Jesus Christ, we are then included in this group with Elijah, that our prayers have great power. Not because we're great, but because God is great. And he hears the prayers of sinners who are forgiven through Christ like us. Friends, God's amazing grace to put us in that category with Elijah should motivate us to pray more and more and more. I pray that it does. But skepticism is a hard thing to break. So we might read about Elijah and say, well, that's great. Thanks for that example, James. But good grief. I don't know how to pray. Elijah was a prophet. My prayers aren't fervent like the prophet's prayer. I mean, verse 17 does say he prayed fervently. Well, I don't feel like my prayers are like that. I'm not, I'm not like a powerful prayer like him. But listen, That phrase in verse 17, he prayed fervently, is literally translated from the Greek. With prayer, he prayed. You know what that means? It means that what James is saying is that it's not the fervency, it's not the frequency, it's not that he was a prophet, it's not that he had eloquent words with these and thou's. Those things didn't make it powerful. Elijah was a man like us. And he just prayed. With prayer, he prayed. Can you do that? Can you do that? Okay. With prayer, he prayed. And guess what happened? For three and a half years, it didn't rain on the earth. This is meant to encourage us. But once again, skepticism is a hard route to pull. And we may think, well, stuff like this doesn't happen for me. I've never seen the Jordan River part for me. I pray and I I don't see a drought come for three and a half years or it rain when I need it to rain. I pray and nothing seems to happen. And when we think that way, after a while cynicism begins to creep into our hearts when it comes to our prayer life. We know that James is right. We know that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, but We just can't get past the fact that it seems like our prayers aren't doing anything and our prayers don't make a difference and our prayers begin to wither. And instead of praying, we forget God and just go on with our next task. Friends, if you see cynicism creeping into your hearts when it comes to prayer, let me encourage you to read this book. Paul Miller has written a book called A Praying Life Connecting with God in a Distracted World. It's one of my favorite books on prayer. And the whole book is good, but if, if, if you don't have time to read the whole book, read chapters 9, 10, and 11, because in, in those, three, those three chapters, he has a, those three chapters are about how we can uh, dig ourselves out of cynicism with God's help. And so if you see that in your heart at all, let me commend this book to you, A Praying Life by Paul Miller as, as a help. Elijah prayed big prayers, right? Three and a half years That's a big prayer. How did he get there? How did did Elijah become so bold to pray those types of prayers? One of the things that's not immediately obvious in the text though, but it's worth noting though, is that Elijah knew God's word. And so he would have have known what the book of Deuteronomy says. That was his text. He had the Torah, right? And he, he would have known as a prophet of God that Deuteronomy 11 verse 17 says that if God's people fell into idolatry, which by the way they had during Elijah's day, then it says the anger of the Lord will be kindled and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. Elijah knew that verse. He looked at what was going on and so he prayed God's word. The reason that Elijah could pray big prayers and pray boldly was not because he had a secret phone line that went to God, he had God's word. And friends, we have God's word. We can pray boldly. We can pray big prayers because we too have God's word. If you feel like your prayers are weak and withering and they are small and you pray for little things, then pour over God's word over and over and over. Memorize God's word in order to jumpstart your prayer life, in order to start your prayer life on fire again. One good place to start is the psalms. The psalms are meant to be sung, but the psalms are actually prayer templates. I'm suffering. What do I do? Well, here's a psalm for sufferers. I'm happy. What do I do? Here's a a psalm to pray for you when you're happy. I'm doubting. Here's a psalm for doubters. Anywhere you're at in life, there's a psalm that says, here's how you pray. You read the psalm, you turn it into your prayer. Use the psalms. Or use the prayer guide that we put in the church bulletin every week. Did you know that? Maybe don't look at your bulletin. Look at your bulletin. There's a prayer guide we put in there every week with prayer requests for us as a church and for the nations and for different ministries around the world. And we attach scripture to those prayer requests. Use the prayer guide from our Wednesday night prayer. We have our prayer requests in one column. We have scripture to guide our prayers in the other column. God's word is meant to guide what we pray for and how we pray about those things. You know why it's important? Because we don't serve a village deity. We serve the creator of the universe. He's not just like, concerned about little things that I, he he cares about the little things he already said that but he's the creator of the universe and so god's word calls us to pray for big things god's word calls us to pray for the person that we think is impossible will never come to christ pray for them pray for god to save who you think is impossible Pray for our church planting efforts. Pray for global evangelization. Pray for the broken marriage to be saved. Pray for the wayward child to come home. Pray for the stubborn stubborn sin to be broken. Pray for the impossible. Pray big prayers because we serve a big God. Friends, if we're going to make it, If we're going to be steadfast and persevere in the marathon of Christianity, we've got to pray. Pray individually. Pray when when we're weak, we call on the elders to pray for us. When we, we pray with one another, and we need the encouragement of God's word to keep praying because we persevere by prayer. Secondly, point number two, we persevere by pursuing. And fear not, this is a much shorter point. We persevere by pursuing. And this is verse 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James has been a hard-hitting book. 59 commands, 59 imperatives that get in our business on things like trials, temptation, money, speech, partiality, pride, envy, selfish ambition, and prayer, just to name a few things. James is a book about faith, but it's about a faith that acts. That we're not just hearers of the word, but doers of it. And so James' vision for what Christianity is, is Hard. It's a marathon. It's, it's a reminder that we can't follow Jesus on our own strength. And so sometimes when we lose sight of that, sometimes when we try to do it on our own strength, we become weary. We fall into temptation. We become so disheartened or discouraged that some, some, End up wandering from the truth. And in the absence of repentance, James says that this wandering from the truth is a path that leads to death. Friends, those drifting that James is talking about in verse 19 come from among you, he says. In other words, they come from the church. The person that you celebrated the Lord's Supper with and wept with and prayed with and studied God's word with and celebrated life's joys with, they wandered from the truth, which is what makes this so heartbreaking. Wandering from the truth usually happens gradually. We don't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think I'm going to ruin my life today. We don't do that. What happens is we, we make small compromises, small sins, and we leave those sins unchecked and our heart begins to harden. Our heart becomes deceived until we're blind, headed for a cliff, and we don't even realize it. We've wandered away from the truth. And friends, one of the things that God has put in our lives as a safeguard from wandering away from the church is this, The church. The church is meant to be a family that's like a spiritual safety net that if we start to wonder, we help each other. That's what church membership is all about. We have a group of people meeting afterwards to, to do sit through a starting point class to think this through because they're recognizing what and what we need, we all need each other. The U.S. Army Ranger Creed says it this way, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. No soldier left behind. And James agrees. At the close of his letter, he calls us to leave no brother or sister behind. Listen, if, if if one of my two boys wanders into the street and they are oblivious to a truck that is headed towards them, I don't look at them and say, Well, not my problem. That's my boy. That's my family. I pursue them. I run into the street. I grab them and bring them back to safety because they're family. Do you notice how James begins verse 19? He calls us brothers. Once again, he reminds us First Baptist, we're family. We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursuing those who wander from the truth is not a job that's reserved for the leaders or staff. It is the job of the church. It's an all hands on deck, it's every one of us. Friends, can you think of someone who's starting to drift, starting to wander away from the truth? Not only knowing the truth, but doing the truth. James is all about that. And they're not dealing with that. And their heart's becoming hard. Can you think of somebody who's beginning to drift? James gives us hope. That person who's drifting, their story is not over yet. They can be restored. And one of the tools that God uses to restore that person is us, the church. That's why we covenant together as a church family. So we should pray for that person. We should call them. We should care for them. We should do all that we can to bring them back because they're family. Or maybe you're the one who's beginning to drift. Friends, if that's you, ask someone for help before it's too late. Friends, when in love you pursue those who are drifting away from God and his truth, And you, by God's grace, are what he uses to bring them back. James says, you save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. That's glorious. To cover does not mean that you sweep those sins under the carpet. If you have a bill and you can't pay that bill, you don't have the money, and someone says to you, don't worry, I'll cover it. What they're saying is they promise to pay the bill for you until it's forgotten. Church, Jesus Christ died and rose again not to sweep your sin and my sin under the carpet. He died and rose again to cover the debt that we owe our very lives And so as a collection of forgiven sinners whose sins have been covered with the blood of Christ, we humbly and lovingly pursue those who are drifting away and we call them back to Jesus who will hold us fast and who will get us to the finish line. He is our hope. Let's pray together.